The Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, bringing you the best GPS mapping software directly to your smartphone or desktop. Onyx offers you the ability to see property boundaries, mark waypoints, track your location, and so much more. Visit onyxmaps.com or you can download it directly from your app store today. Save 20% off of your purchase by using the code NATION20 at checkout. That's capital N NATION followed by the number 20. Welcome to the Transition Wild Podcast brought to you by Expedition Archery. I'm your host, Adam Parr, and you're listening to episode number 62, where we talk with Kristen Cannon of Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Hello, and thanks again for tuning into the Transition Wild Podcast, the number one source for Western big game hunting. March is knocking at the door. This is the time of year when I really start thinking about my fall hunting plans and kind of parlaying off to today's episode, you got to figure out where you're going to hunt in Colorado and what you're going to do for this fall. Cause the draw is going to open up here, uh, beginning of March. So I I'm thinking about what I'm going to hunt. And I think for archery, I'm like 95% sure I'm going to do a high country archery mule deer hunt in Colorado. I've got some points saved up trying to find a, a pretty good unit to go into and, and, you know, try my luck at, at some deer above 12,000 feet. I think that'll be really cool. A lot of fun. And, um, you know, something, something different. I haven't done, haven't done yet. I've, I've killed one mule deer, but it was with a rifle. Um, so I, I, I would like to get one with my bow public land DIY going in, doing it all by yourself. So that'll be It'll be something different, something fun. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So I'm pretty, pretty, pretty set on on, on doing that hunt in September. So stay tuned for that. Uh, if you are planning on elk hunting in Colorado this fall and you really don't know where to begin, pop over to transitionwild.com, subscribe, and I will send you the Colorado Beginner Elk Hunting Guide for free. It links you to, you know, the Colorado Big Game hunting brochure for, you know, the 2020 season. It links you to, uh, you know, many resources for scouting, for gear preparation, for uh, when to hunt, where to hunt. You kind of learn a little bit of everything, kind of a crash course for elk hunting in Colorado. So definitely go to transitionwild.com, subscribe. I will send you that guide for free. All right, today's episode is... A really cool something something I've been wanting to do for a while, but I talked with Kristen Cannon, and she works for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. And we start off the episode. We we dive into the Colorado Big Game Draw, uh, the twenty twenty draw, and what's different for this year, and covering some of the changes and and important things to know when going into the you know application period here um, very soon. So we talk about that, and then we dive over into a number of just kind of um, you know, le- legality type questions and talking about hunting equipment and technology and tagging requirements and land access and just a number of different categories that I just pick her brain on. And she did a really great job answering everything. And, and you know, I feel like I, I know a lot more, feel more confident in, in some of the laws and regulations with hunting in Colorado. So it was it was really educational, a lot of fun. I really enjoyed sitting down and talking with Kristen. So let's not 
wait any longer. Let's get Kristen Cannon of Colorado Parks and Wildlife on the line. Before we begin, today's episode is brought to you by Expedition Archery, manufacturer of the world's finest archery experience. Expedition bows combine aerospace level quality, innovative designs, and a fluid feel serious hunters demand. Test drive one today at your nearest archery retailer and view their full lineup at expeditionarchery.com. Why settle for status quo when opportunity and adventure awaits? Make your next hunt an expedition. All right, on the line with us now, we have Kristen Cannon from Colorado Parks and Wildlife. How are you today, Kristen? I'm good, Adam. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. I wanted to do this podcast last fall, but just got a little busy, and (laughs) here we are like six months later. We're finally recording it, so I really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, I think it'll be an interesting hour of of questions and, and talking about the draw and all sorts of fun stuff, so I'm excited. Uh, yeah, me too. I think this will be a good thing. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I think the timing timing is spot on too because we're just a couple weeks away from, from open or not even two weeks away from opening up the draw. So I think this will be a good resource for a lot of the new changes coming out and talking about all that stuff. So that'll be fun. Yeah, I hope so. And, you know, one week from today, you'll be able to put in your application. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Can't wait. Can't wait. Um, well, before we get into everything, Chris, and I, I kind of wanted to get a little background on yourself. Are, are you originally from Colorado? Are you a rare native species of Colorado or are you uh, uh, an out-of-stater that's transplanted? Uh, yeah, I am actually native to Colorado. So wow. I grew up in the Evergreen area. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Very cool. And and now, where are you still currently based out of Evergreen or where do you live currently? I'm not. So most recently, I was working in, in Boulder County and then kind of Boulder, Larimer, Weld County area. So a little north of Denver. And, and then now I'm in the Denver office. So my, my parents still live in Evergreen. I go to Evergreen all the time, but uh, I'm, I'm living a little farther north these days. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Now, has your background always been kind of the, the wildlife, you know, biology side of things and, and enforcement or w- what kind of got you into this type of work? Yeah, I mean, I, I've known and, and wanted for a long time to work with wildlife and to work outside and just to, you know, have a have a, a meaningful career and something that I care about. And so um, I worked in various wildlife careers for a while and did some field work. And I got a temporary job with uh, then Division of Wildlife collecting heads for chronic wasting disease testing and uh, kind of discovered this role as the district wildlife manager and thought it just was right up my alley. And so I, I got a job as a DWM and, and that's kind of the type of work I've been doing ever since. Very nice. Yeah. And you, and, and you were saying you were kind of more of a, a uh, you were in a different location outside of Boulder, kind of managing that area, but now you're based out of Denver. And, and does how has that role changed from, from this recent transition to, to Denver instead of the Boulder area? Yeah. So I started as a district wildlife manager in the Boulder North District. So I worked in Boulder and Weld County. Uh, and then and then I was promoted to the area wildlife manager, which is kind of the supervisor over district wildlife managers. And so I was managing issues and wildlife and people uh, in both 
southern part of Larimer County, which includes Loveland up to Estes Park, and then all of Boulder and Broomfield County, and the southern part of Weld County, kind of Fort Lupton area. All, all of those together, a team of officers. Um, and now I'm out of the regional office, and so a little more administrative, a little more statewide issues, um, not, not quite so much down in the trenches um, out in the field as much anymore. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And, you know, when I, when I think, I think when a lot of people, myself included, think of parks and wildlife officer, they think, you know, running down poachers is like the, the, the full-time job or like wildlife enforcement, but a wildlife officer is involved in a lot of different facets of management. Like, so you guys do a lot of outreach and, and education. You do a lot of stuff with field, you know, biology and um, tell us a little bit about like some of the responsibilities as as kind of more the district wildlife manager. Yeah, so we call the district wildlife managers the position of, of game warden. Um, it's more classically known as and and different states do it differently. And in Colorado, our, our game wardens or our district wildlife managers, they do law enforcement. So they enforce uh, hunting and fishing laws and regulations, uh, but they also do education. So they'll do programs for communities and for schools and try to educate the public about wildlife uh, and habitat. And then they also do uh, bio- have biological responsibilities, such as doing game counts and fish surveys. You know, this morning I was out trying to help trap some elk to put GPS collars on them as part of a, a study we've got going on. And so no is the game work, uh-huh. That's that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What? Yeah. So they're much more multifaceted in Colorado than in in some other states where they're just primarily law enforcement. Yeah. Yeah. It really sounds like it. What What was the elk? Uh, what, what What are you guys collaring them for? Or what are you looking to find out on on some of these studies? Yeah. So the study I was on today is actually a part of a partnership we have with Boulder County Parks and Open Space. And they have a resident elk herd that's moved on to some agricultural property in areas where we don't have a lot of hunting access. So we're, we're fitting the elk with GPS collars because we're trying to understand better how this herd has become a resident herd and how it's, uh, you know, part of it, they no longer migrate. And so that has all sorts of implications for damage to the habitat and damage to agriculture in the area. And just, you know, we expect elk to be, to, to migrate at least some distance. And, and so once we start getting these resident populations, it can have different implications. And so we're trying to understand that better so we can communicate it to the public uh, in, in an effort to try and have better management in that area. And, and ultimately, hopefully, you know, more hunting access to try to control that herd. Yeah, got it. Very cool. Very cool. Well, it sounds it sounds like an interesting study, and uh, I, I I definitely I would like to pick somebody's brain and have a have a follow up podcast on probably like elk studies and and talk about populations and chronic wasting disease and and overall management at some point too. So I might have to have you back on for a follow up episode or whoever yeah. you think would be good for that. I, I think that'd be really neat as well. Yeah, absolutely. I bet we can facilitate getting somebody who's more knowledgeable on that stuff than I am on, and, and they can they can walk you through that. I think that'd be good. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I kind of want to jump into talking about the new 2020 big game draw, which will you know is is, is knocking at the door here, and and talk about some new 
changes for this year and and I was kind of going through got the got the program in the mail and kind of going through some of the stuff and and it seemed like one of the bigger things or bigger changes for this year is the secondary draw can you talk to us a little bit about that and 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 what that entails yeah that is a pretty big change so it used to be when you would submit your big game application you could select getting kind of a preview of a leftover list. And so if you were unsuccessful or you had applied for a preference point, you would be sent this list of all the licenses that didn't go out in the primary draw. And from that list, you could prioritize, you know, your top four choices, resubmit that application, and then you would, you, you could potentially draw a license in that way. And this year, instead, we're kind of treating it as two different public draws. So you don't need to participate in the first draw to participate in the secondary draw if that's what you want to do. The biggest difference is, is that to get a preference point, you have to participate in the primary draw. So if in that primary draw you're unsuccessful or the hunt code you put down was for a preference point, then you'll be awarded a preference point. Um, and you won't be sold a license, and you'll have that opportunity to participate in the secondary draw, which comes, you know, later on in the year. And so, uh, but then anybody will have access to what licenses are left over in that secondary draw, and it'll look very similar to the primary draw in that you'll put a first choice and a second choice of what's available, but you won't use any preference points in order to draw and you won't get any preference points if you don't get your first choice. Got it. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now when it comes to the, the first draw or the primary draw, you still have your four uh, choices, right? And so if, if you right. don't, let's say you don't draw any any of those, then you could qualify for the secondary draw for that species. Right. So you still have the opportunity and we'll go through everybody's first, second, third, fourth choices. And then whatever licenses are left after that, you can apply for in the secondary draw. But And, and let me check with Michael on this. If you draw a license in the primary draw, you could still apply for a list B license in the secondary draw. Is that right? Correct. As long yeah. as it goes to list execution. So that, that's another big difference is, you know, it used to be that you could only get one license through the draw you know, whether it was that initial draw or the list they send you afterwards. And now you can actually draw a second license through the secondary draw as long as it meets the criteria for having a second license in general. So that list A, list B, list C licenses. Got it. Got it. No, that's that's really cool. And what kind of what was the uh, purpose behind changing and, and doing it this way? Is it just to kind of make things a little smoother when it comes to rolling around to August and, and not so much – uh, you know, traffic hitting all at once for those leftover tags? Is it just trying to kind of cut down on all that? Yeah, I think partially it was to give sports people more opportunity at these licenses. Um, and yeah, it, it will ideally reduce some of the traffic in that August leftover when leftover licenses go on sale. Uh, I think it's also just sort of as our technology has changed, you know, we've moved everything online and so we just have the setup now to do a secondary draw, whereas before it just wasn't um, feasible. Got it. Got it. Well, real cool. Nonetheless, that's, uh, that's going to be interesting to see and, and uh, a big improvement 
it seems like for 2020. So that's that's really cool. Um, I want to talk about season dates. It looks like so obviously they Colorado Parks and Wildlife introduced the next five year program and 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 um, you know selected the dates. It looks like archery has has now been pushed back to September, which is really cool. I th- I think that's a really good move, especially at how hot it is in August and you know running through the end of September will only improve the elk hunting it seems like and and deer hunting for sure. But talk to us a little bit about that uh and then maybe dive into some of the rifle stuff and and maybe how those dates. I don't I guess I don't need specifics, but you know it seems like they all got kind of pushed back uh a little bit. So talk to us a little bit about the season dates for 2020. Yeah, so just very briefly, every five years we go through the big game season structure, and that is just mainly to check in with our hunters and and make sure how you, how we have our season set up and how things are structured is meeting their needs and providing the best experience. And so we went through a public process last year where we went through this big game season structure that will apply to uh, 2020 through 2024. And as a part of that season structure and kind of changing things uh, around, we aligned the archery season with the bear season. So that September 2nd corresponds with uh, the bear season and uh, and then kind of matches up with some of the other opportunities we have for bears. So that was primarily why we moved that date back. Some of the other rifle seasons, you know, we heard from folks that they wanted a longer break in between some of the rifle seasons to kind of give the the animals a break and and also um you know just uh create more time in between some of these seasons and so there was a discussion of how to to make that happen and and what it finally came down to was just a a shorter third season and a longer break between first and second season which is why you know the the fourth season is is later than it normally is by about a week Got it. So that that was sort of the reasoning behind that, uh, and and shortening that that third season to give more of a break in between these seasons. Yeah, yeah, makes makes total sense. And you know, obviously, the public feedback is it, it sounds like CPW takes into account you know a lot of that public feedback and and surveys. I'm sure to to kind of figure out what everybody's asking for and and what they want. So it sounds like we're meeting those needs. Yeah, we certainly try. We have a whole department dedicated to soliciting public feedback and engaging the public. And obviously, not everybody agrees on how they'd like to see things structured, but we try to reflect the majority or at least, you know, make good changes that make sense. And I I think that the majority of hunters were actually pretty happy with how we had things. And so that's why a lot of these changes are fairly minor uh they're you know it's a little significant to change them back a bit but not nothing drastic got it got it now walk us through kind of applying for a license so if you're a non-resident or even a resident you go in and you create a a profile and and a login you get a cid number through parks and wildlife website and then kind of walk us through like how you go about um entering the draw and kind of what it takes to qualify for that, like such as purchasing habitat stamp and, and other base licenses so that you can enter the draw and select, you know, the tags that you want to apply for. So just give us a rundown of, of kind of the, the initial process of applying for tags. 
Sure. So a majority of our hunters are going to apply online. There is an 800 number that people can call if they're really uncomfortable with doing it online. But the easiest way and the best way to ensure you are applying for what you want to apply for and that you're getting the licenses you need to get is to do it online. And so to, to go online through our website, you would click on the buy and apply. And if you've bought a license from us in the past, if you bought it online, you should already have an account. If you bought a license from us in the past, but you haven't yet applied online, there may be a few extra steps involved. And they're, they're fairly self-explanatory on the website. Uh, again, we have that 1-800 number in case people have issues. Um, and people are also welcome to, to call our offices and, and ask for help. And I, I'll add also, we have it all of our offices, we try to staff up right before applications are due so that people, if they're really having trouble or they're not comfortable applying for licenses online, they can come in and we'll physically help them apply for their license online. We have extra people here to answer questions and to make sure that they get their applications submitted. So that's always an option for people that are a little more uncomfortable with computers. But once you create that account online, you can look at your preference points and make sure your address is correct and that your payment method is correct for when they charge you for your license that you hopefully draw. And then you, you'll kind of go in species by species. And, and because this is automated and online, it, it'll walk you through all the stuff you need. So it will tell you that you need to buy a habitat stamp if you haven't already bought one. So that's one purchase you'll need to make. And it'll also tell you that you need to buy a qualifying license if you haven't already bought one. Uh, since we have different licenses that qualify for a qualifying license, it's not going to automatically sell it to you. You'll still have to select it. So, you know, probably the most common qualifying license is the annual small game license that you can buy. So you'll need to have the habitat stamp and that annual small game license. And then you can apply by each species uh, one at a time. So you'll go into deer and you'll enter your hunt codes, your first choice through your fourth choice and, and so on with bear or elk or any of the other species you want to apply for. And then you can pay for all of those all at once you know, we recommend that you print out your confirmation page so it shows exactly what you applied for and gives the transaction number in case you have any issues. And then starting in June, we'll notify people via email uh, when they, if, if they've drawn their license and then they can look for it in the mail. Um, so I also recommend people on their account, you know, make sure you've got your right mailing address so we can mail you your license and make sure we've got a good email address because that's a great way we communicate with you if there's any kind of issue and, and a phone number in case, you know, your payment method, something's wrong with that or anything. So uh, just make sure all your information is correct and make sure your, your hunt codes are correct and that you've got everything in the right order. Uh, there's a way to make corrections. Say you put in the wrong hunt code, uh, you can go and make your own corrections through this website as well. So. It's just, uh, it really streamlines it from days in the past when we had all paper applications come in in envelopes. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Uh, and that, that, yeah, in a nutshell, that's kind of what you do. And again, we're here, we're available if people are having issues or they have questions or they're, something's not working online and they can't figure it out, you know, don't don't hesitate to call in. And I, I guess my only other plug would be don't wait till the last minute because it's a lot easier <laughs> to pick stuff earlier on in the month than it is, you know, April 6th. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, oh, that's a good point. So the, when, when does the application period open and when does it close? 
So the applicant, you can start applying on March 1st, and that application period will close for the primary draw at 8 p.m. Mountain Time on April 7th. Got it. Got it. And so as far as like kind of a qualifying license and a habitat stamp, how much does the habitat stamp cost and how much would, let's say, the small game license cost for a non-resident? And then what are the cost of deer and elk preference points or applications for those species? Yeah. So the habitat stamp is $10.13 this year. Uh, for the qualifying license for a non-resident, they can do a spring turkey license or an annual small game license. The cheaper of those two is the annual small game license, which is $82.78 this year. And then there's an application fee of $9 for, for a non-resident. That would be $7 for a resident. And, and obviously a resident annual small game license is cheaper. Uh, once everything's said and done, if, if all they want to do is uh, apply for a preference point or they apply and they don't draw the license that they want for uh, um, deer and elk, you know, and you only have to buy the qualifying license once. So you could end up with several preference points um, and it would be a different amount of money. But it, let's just say you wanted a preference point for deer uh, that would come to $101.91 just for the preference point. And then any preference point in addition to that would be um, the application fee. $9. So an additional, yeah, yeah, an additional $9 for any other species that you wanted to put in for a preference point, except for um, sheep and goat and moose. And, yeah. yeah. Got it. So, uh, yeah. And, and so there's not really a preference point fee anymore for deer and elk and uh, pronghorn and, and bear. So deer, elk, pronghorn, and bear, there's not a, really a preference point fee anymore, but obviously with that qualifying license, you're still paying a, paying a, a fee, uh, to get that preference point. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And it, you know, most people that are coming out to hunt deer, elk, I mean, most people pick up a small game license for grouse or, you know, whatever while they're out hunting too. So it makes, makes a whole lot of sense there. So yeah, roughly a hundred bucks, you kind of get into the game for at least one preference point for a species. And then after that, it's, you know, pretty, fairly cheap if you're going for uh, deer and uh, elk and pronghorn and bear, sounds like. so. Right, right. Any, any of those additional preference points. And, <laughs> Very and, cool. And should you actually draw, should you actually draw the license, you know, for, uh, it, it varies with deer and elk, but for deer, if you used small game as your qualifying license, you'd end up paying $503.74 for a deer license. And then uh, for a cow license, it would be, uh, thank you, $605.03 if you're using that small game license as a qualifying license. And $700.16 for a bull tag. Got it. For uh, non-residents, yeah, all together. Yeah, very cool, very cool. Now, I I didn't know, maybe this is something that was in the past and, and, and I just didn't realize it, but I was I was reading some stuff about the, the 2020 stuff and, and, and in the handbook there, um, cutoff dates for license sales is that talk to us a little bit about that and is that something that is that is new and and basically what does what does that entail sure so that's not new we've had that in place for a few years and 
the cutoff dates are, are just that you can buy a license at any of our vendors, whether it's a leftover license or an over-the-counter license. Uh, you can buy a big game license at, you know, Dick's Sporting Goods or Sportsman's Warehouse or any of those vendors that sell our licenses up to when the season starts. And then after the season starts, you can still purchase any of those licenses until the season is over, but you have to come into one of our offices. And that's more of a law enforcement issue. So, you, you know, if you're buying a, a license in the middle of a one-week season, uh, we just want to make sure that it's not to tag an animal you've already harvested. Yeah, that makes sense. yeah, yeah, 100%. You know, I just kind of wanted to point that out to, to non-residents. If they're coming, you know, let's say they're starting their archery hunt September 15th or it, it falls on a weekend, you know, let's say they show up on a Saturday, parks and wildlife offices aren't open uh, on the weekends, correct? So they would have to wait until the following Monday. Well, so a couple of things with that is sometimes during, maybe not during archery, but during the big game seasons, we are staffed a lot of offices on Saturdays. Okay. So that's, that is an option to, to check into that. And then also for those longer seasons like archery, they're actually the exception. So I don't want to confuse it too much, but uh, it's archery archery and and planes here let me let me double check exactly but those longer seasons you can actually still go to the uh vendor to buy those licenses because they are pretty long seasons and you might show up in the middle of them reasonably and got it and got it want that to stay convenient so let me just i was just looking at it sounds like probably the okay, safest so. bet just buy your license before season if you know you're coming out that's the easiest <laughs> right right or or call ahead and just plan a little bit you know it's uh um you can also always buy a license online and just select the option to have it printed at at one of our vendors and then have them print it for you but oh, you've okay. already purchased got it yeah got it very cool yeah so what what about is there any other kind of notable changes we should be aware of for this year's draw application period? Um, you know, I would say probably the, you've touched on the big ones. I think that we've added a lot of opportunity for bear hunting. And so it's, it's a lot of different opportunities. It's a little confusing. So as people work through that, I just recommend we've got a lot of additional resources online so that if you would like to come to Colorado or you live in Colorado and you'd like to hunt bear, uh, we can, there's a lot of different options for you. Um, we also have our, our CPW hunt planners, and they're available Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, and so they can help a lot of people as they have issues. Uh, and that information is on the brochure and on our website, a, a different number than our, our regular call-in number. Um, and, and because of that we have that secondary draw, We've actually removed, uh, we used to say, if you are unsuccessful, would you like us to send you the leftover list or would you like us to send you an over-the-counter license? And we've just removed that altogether. So if you're unsuccessful, you won't be charged for the license. You'll get a preference point and then uh, you'll need to buy an over-the-counter license or participate in that secondary draw on your own if you choose to. Got it, got it. And, and do you have, do you know when that secondary draw window will be it's i think i read in there sometime in the summer but i can't remember yeah okay. <laughs> um so the secondary draw uh the 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 list when does the list go on uh, yeah 
Sorry if I'm throwing you a curveball, but <laughs> no, what I'm doing, I just want to give you some good dates, and I just don't have a particular date. So sometime towards the end. Secondary draw. Here you go. Okay. July 7th. Okay. Yeah. Application deadline for the secondary draw. Right. July 7th. I just didn't know if they knew when the list and would go And it opens out. June 5th. Yeah. So I'm not, sometime before June 5th, the, the list of whatever licenses are left over will be posted online so people can decide if they want to do the secondary draw. They will be able to start putting in applications on June 5th. And that will run through July 7th at 8 p.m. Mountain Time that they can apply for that secondary draw. Got it. Got it. So basically another month window, you know, starting right. early June, running through early July to, to kind of, mm -hmm. you know, capture a, a license if, if you weren't successful. That's right. Got it. Very cool. Well, yeah, I, I really appreciate the rundown on some of these changes because, um, you know, it's always always helpful to hear it straight from the horse's mouth as opposed to sometimes <laughs> reading things and, and understanding. And hopefully, you know, a lot of people will, you know, find this beneficial as well, just kind of giving them a rundown and what's new, what's changed, and, and how yeah. we're moving forward. So really cool. Yeah, definitely. And, and the only other thing I would point people's attention to as far as changes go is that we are testing different units for CWD each year. And so if you're going to get a deer license, I just recommend – seeing if your unit is one of the units where we'll have mandatory testing this year. And if, if you're in, harvesting in a unit with mandatory testing, we do want you to bring your head into any of our offices and we will test it for CWD at no charge to you uh, so that we can monitor what CWD is doing in the state. And so that's been kind of changing every year. So uh, it should be pretty clear in the brochure and you should, there should be follow-up emails and letters, but just people, if they want to pay attention to that, if they're going to need to, have their deer tested if they harvest. Yeah, yeah, extremely important there. I ha I actually had a guy on um, a couple episodes ago, and we did a huge episode on on chronic wasting disease in Colorado. Uh, Matthew Dunphy of the Colorado Wasting Disease Alliance, and it was just really informational and 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 talked a lot about Colorado Parks and Wildlife and the efforts that they're doing, um, you know, for testing and management and it it was just really informational for me. And, uh, so yeah, I, I definitely encourage, even if you're not in the mandatory testing unit, uh, certainly more data doesn't help. So I tell everybody just test your deer and elk and, and, uh, you know, the more data we have, the better. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, very cool. Well, that, that fills us in, kind of get started with the draw for 2020. And next, I kind of just want to get into a bunch of random, not necessarily random questions, but I've kind of <laughs> broken down different categories of, of, uh, you know, just questions talking about some gray areas, understanding some laws a little clearer. And so if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to kind of start jumping into to some of those, uh, agendas and, and just kind of move through them as a, as a Q and a, if you're, if you're up for that. Sure. Yeah, let's do it. So I, I kind of, kind of just wanted to kick it off with, you know, for me, weapon transportation is, is, is huge and, and making sure that, you know, if I'm riding in a vehicle or a motorized vehicle, uh, you know, transporting the weapon correctly. And, um, you know, that basically entails carrying a fire or, firearm or a archery equipment in a hard case. And um, I know that's to be true for vehicles, trucks, ATVs. 
Um, I kind of had some questions on like boats and, and kayaks and regular bicycles. And, and, and then I also work for Quiet Cat. We make the electric mountain bikes. Um, how do you, how do you regulate those? Should, should we be carrying a hard case on electric bikes, even though in some cases they're considered non-motorized? Um, talk to us a little bit about that stuff. Sure. And those, uh, yeah, I mean, it seems like you can get around any number of ways these days. <laughs> and, and so it does get a little confusing. Um, if you're in a motor vehicle like a car, you just need to have your firearm unloaded, and that's a long gun. Um, so a shotgun or a rifle, uh, you can't have a round in the chamber. And that's the rule for motor vehicles. For okay. OHVs, yeah, for OHVs uh, and so it doesn't have to be in a hard case if it's inside a like a a truck or you know a, a normal transportation vehicle. Right. So the law is that you just can't have a round loaded in the chamber when you're in a motor vehicle. So you can't have a loaded firearm in or on a vehicle. And so there's there's regulation the the, the letter of the law that's what it states. Obviously it's a lot safer to transport a rifle completely downloaded and in a hard case. So you're driving across the state, you probably want to have your firearm secured safely. And beyond that, it's, you know, there's, there's a safe way to do it. And, um, and that's up to the individual hunter. But legally speaking, we will only write you a ticket if you have a round in the chamber. For OHVs and snowmobiles, you have to have the, the rifle or shotgun fully downloaded and cased. And it can be a hard or a soft case, but it's got to be fully enclosed. And, uh, and they need to be fully downloaded. So that's the difference between the motor vehicle and an OHV. Now, as far as like an e-bike goes, there's no regulations that say that you need to download a rifle on a bicycle. And so I don't know if that's just our regulations haven't caught up to how people are getting around these days, but Obviously, if I were going to ride a regular bike or an e-bike hunting, I would want a hard case and I would want my rifle fully downloaded uh, just for safety issues. I, 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 I don't recommend anyone carry a loaded firearm on a bicycle, but that said, it's not illegal. Got it. Got it. Now, how about boats and, and kayaks, uh, both motorized and, let's say, non-motorized, like a like a paddle boat or a canoe yeah so again there's a bit of a difference between what's legal and what's safe probably and so it's not illegal to have a loaded firearm on a boat or a kayak uh, if you're traveling downriver, it's probably safest to have it downloaded again and cased but we have waterfowl hunters that will hunt from boats and as long as that boat's not under power that's legal for them to do um, I don't know, and maybe maybe you ask this because you, you've got listeners or you do this yourself, but I imagine it'd be kind of hard to get a good shot on a big game animal from a boat. Just <laughs> yeah. getting the, the rifle or the shotgun, it, not, not to say I can't envision a circumstance, but if you took a safe shot from a vessel that was ethical, uh, you know, you... And, and wasn't endangering property or, or anybody else, there's nothing that's not illegal in and of itself. But, you know, it's hard. Boat, boats are a little unpredictable. And so if you were to hunt carelessly or endanger somebody or damage property, you, you wouldn't be 
in trouble for shooting from a vessel, but you could be in trouble for the results. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that was that was one of my questions I had on the list too. Is you know, is it legal to fire uh, a, a bow or a gun from a boat? Um, it sounds like it is legal from a from a motorized uh, boat that you can legally fire uh, at an animal as long as you have the proper license, obviously, and can can hunt that land. It's public land, or yeah, and it know. it can't be under power, so it can't be. Running. Oh, okay, it's gotta got just it. Be floating. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Okay, so it can be a motorized boat, but you can have it turned off. Would that or is Correct. that is, okay? Got it. Got it. Makes sense. And, and just to clarify, as far as like the ATVs and, um, OHV side-by-sides has to be in a case, hard or soft case, can the ammo or arrows be in the case as well, or do they have to be separate? They, they, there's no uh, law or regulation prohibiting them being in the same case as the firearm, just as long as they're not in the magazine or in the chamber. Got it. Got it. Very cool. Very cool. It helps me understand it uh, for sure. Because, uh, you know, as it kind of develops, especially with the e-bike space, uh, you know, I, I thought that could be kind of a, a gray area. And obviously it's, mm-hmm. you know, probably, you know, need some, some updating as, as things, you know, progress with, with that technology as well. So got it. Um, I want to talk a little bit about hunting area access and kind of you know, public lands and, um, you know, like some of the areas that, you know, there's, there's public lands everywhere, but in particular national parks, state parks, uh, certain public land areas that are not open to hunting. Can you use those as access points? For example, like, can you go into a national park, uh, park your vehicle, walk through that national park, to a chunk of BLM or national forest, uh, and still be legal. Is that, is that, is that legal in Colorado? Well, so this is going to be really a localized question and it depends on the land manager of the property that you're crossing. Got it. So like Rocky Mountain National Park does not allow firearms in the park at all. So you, you wouldn't be able to cross national park property to get to uh, huntable land if, if that requires carrying a firearm, which, you know, of course it does. And there's open space properties that are the same way. They There's public access on the open space. Maybe there's huntable land beyond them, but you can't carry your firearm on open space. And that's their regulation. So that's why I say it's really local and specific is you kind of got to check with the land management agency um, of the property that you want to cross, because I won't say in all circumstances, that's not okay. There's certainly some state parks and some open space parcels where there's access for hunters. So you're not allowed to hunt on their property, but they're acknowledging that they, that you can cross their property to gain access to properties that you can hunt. And so it's just, it's different depending on where you are. And it's just really important to check on that. Uh, because it's going to be their laws against carrying firearms, not so much, um, you know, in addition to anything they have for hunting. Got it. Got it. Yeah, it sounds sounds like contact a local BLM office or, you know, National Forest, uh, you know, agency or local land office in that area to really find out, yeah. you know, what's, yeah, what's most, allowed. Most often it'll be the national park, the state park, or the uh, open space entity. 
those are the ones that come to mind for me where uh, there's public access but no firearms. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, talking, moving back towards kind of the water and, and, and boats and stuff or – I guess you wouldn't necessarily need a boat if it's if it's a, a smaller river or stream, but can you access is is water access via like smaller creeks and streams? Is that allowed in Colorado, or does it have to be a river in which you have to float? Um, tell us a little bit about like water laws yeah. in Colorado. Yeah, so I'm going to refer you to my legal counsel on this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's kind of a complicated topic and. You know, there's there's some that it say that if you float down a river and you never touch the bottom, then you're never truly trespassing. And so you can you can, you know, get around. Uh, it. Yeah, you can get around that way. But there's people who disagree with that. And then there's also, you know, Colorado is kind of an arid place. Some of these rivers and creeks, it's really hard to navigate these rivers without touching the bottom. Yeah. And so by the letter of the law, you know, you'd, you'd be trespassing at that point. And so this is something that, you know, in various parts of the state is fairly controversial. And, and so I'm just, I don't think I'm qualified to weigh in on it. I, I would say, you know, if you've ever got a question about, you found a really great patch of public land that you want to hunt, that's got a lot of good game on it, you know, do your homework and your scouting ahead of time and See where you think the access points are and then start asking land management agencies questions and private property owners questions and try to make sure you have that access secured before the season starts and that you know know what the rules are in particular to that localized area. So unfortunately on this one, I just don't think there's a good general rule of thumb or a broader answer. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, it's just like kind of what we just touched on. It sounds like, you know, it's very localized depending on, you know, a number of factors. And so it's always best to be informed with the local, you know, manager in that area. And, and like, how do, how do you go about doing that? Do you call parks and wildlife directly and they'll put you in touch with uh, a local land office or how does that work? Well, you can, you can always call the local, the most local parks and wildlife office that's around there. So wherever you want to hunt, because sometimes your local district wildlife manager, wildlife officer can help get you in touch or already knows the answer, or they just have more specialized local knowledge. But in general, it's, it's going to be kind of, a, you know, a bit, bit of a homework assignment. I mean, I recommend people get GPS programs that can show them land ownership and there's nothing, you know, sometimes you can reach out to a private property owner directly and establish that relationship. And sometimes there's uh it, it might be a little more difficult than that. So it's, you, it doesn't hurt to start with us. We'll certainly try to help you, but it, it depends on, on where you want to go and, um, and who you need to talk to. And, and so I think, you know, maybe start with us and we can send you, send you in the right direction for where you want to go. And you might take a little extra homework in addition to that. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And, and uh, I know this wasn't on the list, but it is kind of the same thing apply to, let's say, gated roads like there's there's a number of let's say like county roads that have gates on them um is that the the best as well to say can you i know obviously you couldn't drive a motor vehicle down them but you know can you hop the fence and walk down that legally um is that kind of the same rule of thumb reach out to a local land office or maybe even like the county uh you know that that has the jurisdiction over roadways and stuff like that 
Yeah, if it's a county road with a gate across it, I, I would reach out to the county and, and see what they have to say. If it's, you know, private property on the other side of that gate, then obviously you need permission from the private property owner. And sometimes the Forest Service has odd easements and access restrictions where there's a road through their property, but that road's not public. And so I would also make sure wherever you want to go hunting that you've got the, whether it's BLM or Forest Service, that you've got their local office number handy so that you can ask them questions like that about, you know, why is this gate up and is it legal to pass? Because sometimes gates are up just to keep motor vehicles out and otherwise there's public access. And, and sometimes gates are up because that road is private and it's to prevent people from going back there. So just knowing, knowing what kind of land is beyond that gate and what uh, the access is there is, is important. Yeah, yeah, 100%. 100%. Now, uh, corner hopping in Colorado, it's currently illegal. I think it's illegal in most states. Um, what, uh, I mean, do you see that changing at all? Is that a, or is that more of a, like a BLM, uh, forest service kind of, kind of issue or, or topic? It, it, Cause there's a lot of landlocked, you know, public land in the West, especially on BLM. Um, you know, what's, what's kind of the. Uh, obviously, it is illegal, but I, I guess, can you elaborate on it a little further? Sure. So it, it's illegal because it just is, at this point, pretty impossible to be able to step precisely from public land to public land. And so, practically speaking, you have to trespass to get from one parcel to the other. And so that's yeah. been, that, that ends up is what is illegal about it is you end up trespassing inadvertently. If you, like, as you say, as technology gets better and better and, and maybe you can place your feet in the exact position of the corner and, and not technically corner hop, it, that, that'll be a, a test for the, the courts, I think. Um, so there's kind of a couple ways that that could play out is either somebody, you know, has a really precise GPS unit and they're able to corner hop really precisely. And, and if they get ticketed, they can challenge it in court and see how the court sorted out. Or they could change the laws on some of that stuff to make it a little more lenient. And, and that's hard to predict. I never say never on that stuff. A lot of good regulations and laws come from the public and are, are there to address public concern or, or a public issue. The other thing I would say is that, you know, how we've kind of approached it as an agency, and I know how a lot of uh, like Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and other places are just trying to get more legal access in those corners. And so as opposed to trying to get around how exactly to legally corner hop, trying to get access easements on some of these private properties that are the other two corners and, and get hunters access if, you know, not to hunt on those properties, but uh, to get through them to get to more huntable areas. And so yeah. that's been a big focus of a lot of public access groups is to try to get more easements in places that can get hunters to these landlocked parcels. Yeah. Yeah. It just in your, time of, of being with the parks and wildlife is that something that's been a you know a, a big issue like in the field like is there a lot of people doing that or I mean I don't like yeah. you said uh, it, it can be you know maybe a court process or whatever but is it is it something you deal with a lot uh, not so much in the areas I've worked but certainly on the west slope uh, it's a much bigger issue and it it, it does it's, it's it's an issue we recognize it stinks to have a huge parcel of public land basically uh, inaccessible to public people and, and treated more as private property. But um, 
but as far as the, you know, how many hunters are getting in trouble for that every year, I, I, I don't know that I know that answer. Got it. Got it. I want to talk about trailing wounded animals. Let's say you shoot an animal, um, let's say you shoot an elk and you're on BLM or national forest, and then it runs into, uh, a state park or national park, uh, what what's kind of the legalities there is it is it legal to go and trail that animal do you have to leave your weapon uh back at the truck or outside of that land boundary if you can go after it talk to us a little bit about kind of kind of that whole area so if you know you got to think about what the the rules are for the property that the animal ran onto so say you wounded an animal and it ran onto the national park. Uh, if if the area where the animal is is a place that is open to the public and anybody can walk onto there, but it's the national park, so you're not allowed to carry a firearm, you're probably good to put your firearm away and track that animal on foot because you you can legally be there anyway. Now, of course, if you're tracking a wounded animal, you generally want to be able to put it down if you need to. And so we've had it come up several times, whether it's national park or even open space property, where, again, carrying of a firearm is not legal. But if an animal runs onto their property, uh, the, the best thing to do is to contact them and let them know what the situation is and get their permission. Because I find that most of the time these land managers don't want a wounded animal to suffer. And so they will allow you to take a firearm and track the animal and put it down. And, and sometimes they'll want to go with you or send a ranger with you, but they'll, they'll facilitate that and let you do that in a way that is legal. So the, the first thing, if that's what happened, if, if you, you know, think that the animal might still be alive and needs to be dispatched, then you should contact whoever owns that property, whether, whatever entity that is, or contact the local sheriff's department or, you know, try to get a hold of your on-call wildlife officer and have them help facilitate getting onto that property and, and, and dispatching that animal. If it's something where the animal ran onto this property 500 yards and then died, and all you need to do is field dress it and remove it, you know, I would, I, I would recommend taking a, a GPS point of where you shot it, where it was standing, where you shot from, uh, before you put everything away. But then if you've got a, a legal ability to be there, you're probably okay to go onto that property and, and take care of the animal. Um, it still wouldn't hurt to to give them a call or to give the local dispatch a call and let them know what happened in case somebody calls it in and um, and, and reports you as doing something wrong. Yeah. Yeah. makes sense. Get ahead of the curve there. So there's no, uh, no questions, you know, uh, you know, what, what you're actually doing. Yeah. Someone thinks you're in there poaching an animal or something. So sounds like just some heads up and permission and, and, um, you know, go in there and do it. So, um, how about, how about private property? Let's say, uh, you know, you shoot an animal and let's say, you know, it's down and it's just laying 10 feet on the other side of the fence. What, what are your options there? Um, you know, contacting the the landowner obviously but what if he if he says no what are there any legal options that you can pursue after that the short answer is no so when you've shot an animal you know you're legally required to make an effort to track that animal and to harvest that animal and you're legally required to take the meat out of the field 
So if you've shot an animal and it's run onto private property, to meet those uh, obligations, you're required to make a, a good faith attempt to contact the landowner and ask for permission. If that landowner denies you permission, then you cannot go onto their property to harvest that animal. And you are, uh, for lack of a better term, kind of off the hook with those other obligations. So you, you made your best effort to harvest that animal to make use of that meat. And the private property owner denied you access. And there's really nothing more you can do. You can continue to hunt and try to harvest a different animal. Got um, it. In, in my time, I found that, you know, most private property owners don't want a carcass on their property and they would prefer you come and harvest the meat and take care of it or dispatch it. Even if they're not a fan of hunting or even if they don't want you on their property, they, they would allow you to do that. And in some circumstances, if you call your local wildlife officer, they can help facilitate that or, or help, you know, make the, the resident feel at ease if, if they're there. And we'll, we'll try to help on that when we can, but um, ultimately, if, if they just refuse to grant access, there's not a whole lot anybody can do. Got it. Got it. This is, this is kind of a, a random question, but talking about going back to like the national parks or open space or state parks that are public lands, like in an effort to, let's say, drive animals from a park, I, I would assume that would be illegal to do so to like purposely like drive animals off an area onto a huntable public land or even private land um in an effort to you know take an animal that way what what is the ruling on on that well this is kind of a hard area and there's nothing specifically that prohibits that action but you you're not allowed to harass wildlife so really chasing and pursuing and harassing wildlife is is not allowed and you're not allowed to chase game away from a hunter so whether you just don't like the guy or you're anti-hunting you're not allowed to drive game away from them so that they can't harvest and so beyond that you know there's some ethical considerations too um there's other hunters out in the field or um it just kind of depends on the situation um at the same time you know you're going to have other users around people mountain biking or hiking or walking their dogs or even other hunters that are inadvertently uh, pushing game around as well. And so it's, um, there's, as long, you know, as long as you're not using a drone or a motor vehicle, there's nothing to prohibit that specific action, but there's other consequences that could make it illegal. There's other, you know, ethical considerations when you're doing it. Got it. Got it. All right. I want to talk a little bit about kind of shooting and, and firing a weapon and, and talk about some scenarios there, but what's the, what's the legalities with shooting across roads? And, 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 you know, obviously there's a lot of different kind of road types and some are more like ATV, you know, two track trails. And then you have some that are like dirt roads that are kind of, you know, really well maintained, uh, can you shoot across public roads, trails, um, if you have permission to hunt that land, whether it's public or private, on each side? Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so, you know, the, the legal definition of, uh, the, so the, 
the statute is a prohibition. You cannot fire across a public road for safety reasons. Yeah. And the public road is defined as, you know, uh, the traveled portion and the shoulders on each side of any road maintained for public travel by a county, city, or city and county, the state, or the United States government, and includes all structures within the limits of the right-of-way of any such road. So if it's maintained as a public road, then you, you can't shoot across it. And so what that doesn't include is a private road on private property. And, you know, as you get back into the woods on these two tracks, uh, it gets it gets a little grayer. And so, you know, the spirit of it is to keep people safe. You don't want to shoot across a highway, obviously, and you don't yeah. want to shoot across a road that anybody could come traveling down at any minute uh, just for safety reasons. So if that two track up in in the the woods far back and away um, hasn't hasn't been driven on in ten years, you know doesn't exactly meet the the spirit of the law. But for for safety purposes and and just to keep yourself out of trouble, I would just avoid shooting across any road uh, if you can help it. And does the same thing apply to hiking trails? Let's say they're they're non motorized hiking or our bicycle trails is the same rules apply there. So there's nothing to say you can't like, it's not the same specific statute. So, you know, we have a specific statute that says you can't shoot from or across a road. There's nothing to say that you can't shoot from or across a trail, but there are, if, if that trail is being heavily used, then it might be, you know, careless hunting or, or other, other charges, you'd have to be careful. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't shoot across a trail for the same reasons as the road is that you just never, that's, that's a, uh, a, some place you should expect people to be using and to yeah. be coming down and sometimes quietly. And so you just never know who's going to be walking down that trail, but it's, it, there's nothing that specifically outlaws it. Um, sometimes I, I will give the caveat that, especially like on Forest Service and stuff, there's sometimes prohibitions in certain areas uh, if they're occupied, if it's near a campsite, that sort of thing to to keep people safe. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Now, what about firing a weapon from one unit to another unit? For example, let's let's say a a river is a unit boundary. And let's say you were camping on the other side of the river, but you're, which you didn't have a tag for, uh, for, for a certain species, but you were hunting the other unit. Can you fire from the area you're camping in that you don't have the tag in across a river uh, or across a, uh, from a unit, whether there's a boundary or not, uh, and, and is that legal? Yeah, it's funny. That river example is probably the only example that applies because I think otherwise we use roads as boundaries. We use mountain ranges as boundaries sometimes. And, you know, that probably, yeah. you know, it's not legal to shoot across the road and you're not really shooting across a mountain. So yeah. uh, the river might be the only one that, that really applies in this. And and I would say, no, it's not legal to shoot from a unit where you do not have a valid license because that license, it, it doesn't just authorize you to harvest an animal. It, it authorizes you to hunt and it authorizes you to hunt in the unit that it is for. And so by discharging a firearm in a unit where you don't have a license, you're 
in effect hunting without a proper license. Got Does it. that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So you need to be in the unit boundary that you have the license for in order to be legal. That's correct. And now if if you were in the unit that you have a license for and you shot at an elk that was in the unit you have a license for, and then the elk ran across the road or the river into the unit where you don't have a license, you're still legal to harvest that animal and to, you know, field dress it and to take it because your hunting was legal, your harvest was legal. It's just where it died um, was in the in the other unit, if that makes sense also. Got it. Yeah. And that's uh, kind of the same scenarios we were talking about earlier. But um, if that does happen where it runs into a different unit, uh, is that best to, you know, contact Parks and Wildlife in, in, in an effort to kind of get it ahead of the curve there? Or is that something that you, if, as long as you have and are able to show where the shot took place and obviously a blood trail, is that something that you can just go in and do? Yeah, I mean, it never hurts to to give the the local officer a heads up if it's something like that. Uh, I would definitely document, again, where you shot from, where the animal was when you shot it, and kind of have at least in, you know, your own head where the the blood trail is. That way, if an officer checks you in the field and sees that you're field dressing an animal in the wrong unit, that you can pretty easily point to what actually happened and demonstrate that you were legal. Um, If it's, you know, if it's, 10 miles into the wrong unit, you're going to get questioned a lot more than if you're at the unit boundary and able to show you where the animal was in a, in a blood trail. Um, it, it's just a matter of, uh, of what the, the evidence demonstrates at that point. And so I would just, you know, recommend that, that you at least uh, document what you did. And then if there's any question, call the wildlife officer and just talk to them. Got it. Yep. Makes, makes a hundred percent sense. Uh, makes a hundred percent uh, to me, on a, loud and clear. Um, what about shooting? I, I would assume this would be illegal for safety purposes, but firing at an animal that's skylined on a on a ridge line or or whatever is that is that illegal in Colorado? So again, it's kind of one of those circumstances where shooting at a skylined animal isn't the illegal act in and of itself, but it could be construed as careless hunting, especially if property were damaged or somebody was put at risk. So it's, you know, it's obviously not a safe shot and it's not very ethical. Um, and you could be charged with careless hunting, especially depending on what's on the other side of that hill. Yeah. Uh, but you, the charge would not be just shooting at a skylined animal in and of itself. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. And how about as far as like open carrying a, a sidearm or a handgun, during hunting season or let's say archery season, is that, is that legal to do so in Colorado? Yeah, you can carry a handgun wherever it's legal otherwise while you're hunting. If you're carrying a handgun during archery season, you just can't use it to hunt or to dispatch the animal. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Makes sense. Makes sense. I want to jump over to hunter safety and and kind of clarifying that for people because sometimes that's a little confusing for especially for non-residents and 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 what's legal but can you explain hunter safety cards and you know having to carry them as a non-resident and then also talk about getting ver- getting your hunter safety verified so you don't necessarily have have to have it on you uh, at all times talk to us a little bit about the legalities of your hunter safety card while hunting in the field sure 
So in Colorado, you're required to have completed a hunter safety course before you can buy a hunting license. And, you know, as we were talking about earlier, a lot of our, our applications and everything has been pushed online. So if you are an out-of-state hunter and you're applying for a hunting license, they're going to ask you what your hunter education number is and what state you got it in. If, if you just purely apply online and get your license online, it, it will print that hunter safety number that you provided and it will, um, you will also be required to carry a copy of your hunter safety card in the field. So if you don't have a copy of your hunter safety card, you'll either need to get one from the state where it was issued, get a reprint, or alternatively, if you come into one of our offices, we could try, especially if you've taken it recently, we can try to verify that you have been uh, taking a hunter safety course in whatever state you took it in. And if we're able to verify that with that state, we can verify it on your license so that you're no longer required to carry it with you, if that makes sense. I mean, the whole yeah. idea is that you're required to have hunter safety to get a hunting license in Colorado, and we just want to protect against somebody making up a number, never having taken hunter safety and coming to Colorado and buying and going hunting. And so if we can verify that you've taken it, we will, we will put that in our system. And once it's in our system, it'll show up on your license as a V. So it'll have the hunter safety number and then a V afterwards. And that means that your hunter safety number is verified and you're no longer required to carry it in the field. But if you don't have that V, you're going to be required to carry your hunter safety in the field so that we can make sure that that was, you know, actually done as a, as a requirement to getting a hunting license. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. That's, that's how I tell people all the time. Obviously you need to have it on you. And, you know, so if you come out the first time to hunt, it's your first year in Colorado, I say, you know, if you can take a day during the week or, you know, they're open on a Saturday, definitely go, just go get it verified. So you never have to worry about it again and, and you're all set to go. So, um, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's just, even if you have the card, if you don't want to have to carry it in the field, swing by one of our offices uh, and, you know, not one of the agents, but an actual office. And once we see it, we can verify it in the system to the, to the same effect. It'll have a V next to your number and you'll no longer be required to carry it in the field. Great. Great. Perfect. I want to talk about meat transportation and, and, and tagging and, um, you know, it's a, I myself just want to make sure everyone's on the same page here, but when it comes to, you know, tagging an animal, let's say a deer and an elk, where, where would be the best place to attach that tag? Is that, you know, on the hindquarters, is it on a leg? Uh, can you, I think it's illegal to tag the antlers if I'm not mistaken, but um, just talk about proper tagging and, and, you know, what's best practice there. So you're required to attach your voided carcass tag to the carcass. And so I think, you know, technically the antlers wouldn't maybe be part of the carcass and that's where that comes from, but it's just best practice to attach your voided carcass, your voided and signed and marked carcass tag to the quarter that has your evidence of sex on it. And that's, that's not a requirement. It just makes checking your, your meat a lot easier and faster so whatever quarter you have that evidence of sex on, you want to attach it with, you know, tie it on or zip tie or something so it's not going to get lost um, on, onto the carcass. But legally, you could attach it to any of the meat uh, that, that makes sense to you. It's just 
again, when you're contacting a wildlife officer in the field, they're going to want to see the evidence of sex and they're going to want to see the carcass tag. So sometimes it's easier to have it in one place. Got it. Got it. And, and how long I, it, do you have to have that carcass tag on there until you process the meat? Obviously, when you, you process it, you're going to have to, to remove it at some point, and then you place it with the, the meat as well, like, let's say in your freezer alongside of it, just for reference there. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of best practice also. So you're required to have the carcass tag with the meat as soon as you're back to camp or you're back at your vehicle. So after you've hauled out all the meat and it's either hanging in camp or in your vehicle ready to be transported, then you want to attach it. And then it's got to stay attached mainly through transportation. So whether you're driving it to the uh, processor or you're driving it home to process yourself, it needs to stay attached that whole time. Now, the processor will take it off and, and give it back to you when, when they process your meat. Or if you process it home, you'll remove it at that time. You can always keep your carcass tag with your meat at that time. It is, it is a good reference. It is a good practice. But once it's processed, you're no longer required to actually have the carcass tag in or on the meat. Got it. And, and, and talking about tagging, I wasn't aware. I, I was... I was under the impression that you have to tag an animal as soon as, let's say, you come up on it. You know, you find it dead, you immediately tag it, and then you can quarter it and 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 bring it out that way. But you're saying it's also uh, it's okay to get all the meat back first, and then you can attach the carcass tag um, to one of the quarters or to where the proof of sex is. Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll I'll di- differentiate a little bit. You're required to void your carcass tag the second you've harvested. So you come up on the animal, the animal is dead, it's time to field dress it. Before you start field dressing it, you need to detach the carcass tag, sign it, mark the sex and the date on the carcass tag. And then because we don't want you to lose it in the field, at that point, it's okay to put it in your pocket and to keep it because it's voided at that point. You can't continue to hunt on that license. The carcass tag is voided. So you can put it in your pocket at that point and then transport all the meat out of the field. And then as soon as you're ready to drive that meat anywhere or you're in camp, then you need to make sure that carcass tag gets attached to the meat. And the the reasoning behind that, again, is we don't want you to immediately tie your carcass tag to the, the downed animal and then you field dress it and you get it back to the car and suddenly the carcass tag is gone in the, the you know, all the process of getting it back there and Got cutting it. it up. So, so that is make sure you void it right away. That part is very important, but you don't necessarily need to attach it until you're back at camp or ready to transport it. Got it. Got it. hundred percent. And, and voiding it is just, can it be fully voided if it's fully detached or let's say, let's say somebody does detach something like maybe a, a young, you know, boy grabs his dad's tag or something and then you know just rips the tag off for whatever reason would it be best to then get a reprinted tag uh for for yes. that hunt would be the same yeah path. so those perforated edges are hard to resist when you're a kid, for <laughs> sure. but uh but if that carcass tag gets voided inadvertently so or it's just in your pocket and it gets ripped or something happens where that carcass tag is now detached from your license your license is no longer valid. Even if you haven't harvested anything at that point, it's no longer valid. And so you would need to go in and get another license printed. Okay. Got it. Got it. And that's like usually like a small fee, I believe, or do they reprint those for free? 
Yeah, no, it is a fee. It's uh, it's half the cost of the license up to a certain amount. Okay. So I would have to, to check on that. So it is a fee. You don't don't void it if you don't if you can <laughs> yeah. help it. But yeah. there is there is an option and there is a requirement that if you're going to go out in the field, you have a valid license that's totally intact. Got it. Now, as far as bringing out the meat, is there a particular order that you should bring out first? Like, should you bring out proof of sex first? Let's say you're two miles back, three miles back and, and you know, you're bringing out quarters. Uh, is there a rule of thumb that applies there that you should bring out proof of sex first or does that not matter? So there's no legal requirement of what you pack out first, as long as you bring out all the meats for human consumption that you're required to bring out. And so if you can't do that all in one trip, then obviously you've got to kind of split it up. It, it, again, I would say it's not legally required, but it's best practice to probably bring out the quarter with the evidence of sex that you can potentially put the carcass tag on and have it at the truck first. So that if a, and that's just, you know, a, a thing, if a wildlife officer, again, contacts you, they've got what they, they need from you and, and it won't necessarily mean they got to come back and contact you again or or spend more time with you than you want them to. So um, that's probably best practice, but you know, should you bring out the front quarter and, and not tag it uh, immediately, that's that, that, there's nothing against that either. As long as you eventually bring out all the meat and eventually get your carcass tag on there before you transport it anywhere, you're fine. Got it, got it. And yeah, what you, you mentioned it a little bit, What what is the minimum amount of meat that one is legally required to bring out on a, on, a, on a big game species? So on a big game species, we require all four quarters, the back straps and the tenderloins. And that meets your obligation of, uh, you know, the pre- preparing all the meat for human consumption. That's, that's what would uh, uh, meet that, that legal requirement. And then obviously on a big animal, like a moose or an elk, there's a lot more meat you could bring out. And we definitely encourage any hunter to get as much of that edible meat as they can. But as long as you brought out the four quarters, the back straps and the tenderloins, you've satisfied the requirement in the law. Got it. Got it. And for evidence of sex, let's say, let's say you kind of made a mistake or, or you didn't uh, leave it attached. What would you do in, in that scenario? Would, would, would you recommend you know, contacting an officer to, to let them know, Hey, like I messed up here and I should, uh, I just want to make you aware or what's, what's the best practice there. If you, you know, get in a hurry and, and, you know, you, you don't dress it out the way you should to leave that evidence of sex attached. Yeah. So I would, you know, always be careful and try to avoid being in that situation to begin with. You can, you know, there's, there's, different options to leave naturally attached that can satisfy your evidence of sex. You can actually use the head as evidence of sex as long as it's still naturally attached, which doesn't really work if you're packing it out from the backcountry. But, you know, maybe if you're field dressing it and you accidentally cut off the udders, you could still leave the head naturally attached to the rest of the carcass and that could satisfy that evidence of sex. Or if you, you know, you cut it off of one quarter, but it's still attached to the other quarter, you know, always do your best to begin with and be conscientious about that. But obviously we, we all make mistakes and, and it just, it, it, you're never going to go wrong trying to contact a wildlife officer if you've got questions or if you screwed something up. Um, but, you know, at the very least, I, I would just make sure you document 
that you you have the 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 animal that you're licensed for. So if you're going to leave the head in the field um, or the you, you've got pictures ideally maybe before you field dressed it to really demonstrate that you did harvest a cow if you've got an antlerless license. Yeah. And then I would still I would still bring out that detached evidence of sex with you. Um you know, officers have discretion and they, they don't try to be uh mean or jerks about it and and in each case is different. And so if you if you were contacted or you called it in, especially if you called it in and it was an honest mistake and you're a newer hunter, most of the time I, I think we, we try to be reasonable about that sort of thing. But um, but just as long as, you know, the purpose of having that requirement is to just make sure that people are harvesting what they're licensed for. Yeah. So as long as you can demonstrate that, um, that you, you should be pretty good to go. Not to say that you won't always, that, that you'll never get in trouble for it, but that's, that's really the, the meaning behind it. And so as long as you're meeting that, you, you shouldn't get in too much trouble. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Watching one of the, the meat eater TV episodes. They did an episode here in Colorado and, and talked with Bill Andre, he's one of the mm-hmm. officers. And you know, it was, it was just really interesting to hear them talk to him because it seemed like the best the best rule of thumb for any of these scenarios is just you know use your best judgment if you think it's going to be a gray area or you you have to question it. You probably shouldn't be doing it. You know, <laughs> in a lot of these scenarios. Yeah. So yeah, a, yeah, you don't you don't want to end up arguing it in a courtroom, really. Is just what it comes down. To. Like it may it may be a gray area, but I think you you'd rather it'd be easier if it was white, right? And yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. This is kind of a a different scenario, uh, maybe more of an ethics question than than legalities. But let's say like you know early archery season, it's it's you know blazing hot, uh, maybe upper eighties or something like that, and and. Uh, you go hunting knowing that potentially there could be some, some meat spoilage based on where you're hunting, um, you know, and being able to get out all that meat in time before it spoils is, is there any legalities revolving around that? Or is it just more of like an ethical thing, like trying to hunt animals and, and, and remove game, let's say you're solo hunting and, and don't have backup to get it all out very quickly. Um, what, what would you kind of, roll with if, if you discovered something like that? Well, so, you know, again, there's no specific law that says you can't hunt if it's above 80 degrees, right? But there is a law that says you need to bring out the edible portions of meat and prepare it for human consumption. And so if you're 10 miles back all by yourself and you shoot an elk and it's 80 degrees, you're going to need to bring that meat out one way or the other. And whether you call some friends and get them in there and you, you, and you're going to need to do your best to keep it from spoiling. So you're going to need to, to make a, the best shot you can and field dress it right away. And, and then if you obviously can't get it all out in one go, then you have to keep working at it until you get it out. And if it spoils in the meantime, um, you know, you still need to get it out of the field. You don't get to to say, oh, well, it's bad now. I can leave it. Got it. So that it's really like I, I it's a disadvantage to a hunter. If they're going to shoot an elk, they better be prepared to get that elk out no matter what. Yeah. And if it's if it's if it's starting to stink by the time they get it back to their truck and get it back home, they still have to prepare it for human consumption. And so it, it's it's on the hunter not to put themselves in a position where they're preparing meat that they don't think they'll want to eat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and there's, you know, nothing's going to force them to eat it, of course, 
but that's a lot of work for an animal that is is spoiled and and the only other thing I'll say to that is you know I came across I worked helped on a case once where someone used that very excuse it was muzzleloader season and they had shot a really big bull and they said it took them forever to to find the bullet had been wounded and then it died and by the time they found it the meat was rotten so of course they just took the giant set of antlers and left everything else and you know we went back a couple weeks later and there were still this was in the high country but there were still portions of that meat that were were good and in good shape so it's you know it doesn't maybe it doesn't make the best game meat to hunt in hot weather like that but it 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 takes a while for it to really spoil too bad and if you get on it right away you can you can get it out of there in time yeah yeah no makes 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 100 percent sense i like it um I want to talk kind of the last little subject here is is more along the lines of kind of technology and um, reading through the handbook I came across. I, I didn't know this was illegal. Maybe it's a new thing for 2020, but um, cell phone or, or cellular trail cameras are those – it seems like now that they're, they're illegal to use in Colorado. Are they illegal to use year-round? Uh, or just during hunting season, tell us a little bit about cellular trail cameras. Yeah, so you can't use a trail camera that gives out a signal. So you basically can't watch a a, a game camera in real time. You can use game cameras, um, but you can't have one that you know beams pictures to your cell phone. Is kind of what you're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. And right, so that that is illegal. And um, and I. Trying to see here if that is new this year. I I don't believe so. I mean, I think the technology, of course, is is newer. Um, yeah, because I knew I knew some but, states like Idaho, and I thought they I, I was aware that they couldn't use them, but I wasn't sure about Colorado, or at least wasn't aware of it yeah. until I read it this year. But right, yeah, and I I I'm not sure what year. Um, that, that was adopted. It could have been, I, I would have to spend a little more time researching. Um, but yeah, it's just, uh, you know, a, in addition to using drones or other kind of technology assisted hunting, um, it's just meant to ensure that fair chase. Aspect. Yeah. 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 hundred percent, hundred percent. Now, uh, talking about like night shining or let's say just viewing elk or deer through, uh, infrared, binoculars or, or whatever, is, is that technology illegal to use at all times of the year during hunting season? Um, can you shine for elk? Talk, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So the, the using spotlights at night, so it's illegal to use light to hunt big game at night and it's illegal to hunt big game at night, of course. Uh, and so it's the, using the spotlight in and of itself is not illegal. It's just the hunting portion of it. And so if you're out with a spotlight and you have a rifle with you, uh, you're probably going to be cited for violating that law. If you're out with a spotlight and you don't have any firearms and you're just driving around looking at, at deer or elk or whatever, um, that that is not illegal as long as you don't have a firearm with you or you're not hunting or harvesting any animals. Okay, got it. And And can you do that on both? Can you do that on private land if it's not like you don't own the land or you have permission? Can you still shine it or or look at animals at night? 
as long as you're physically where you can, you are legally allowed to be. So as long as you're not trespassing on private property without permission, uh, it's not considered trespass to shine a light onto property. Yeah, uh, you, you might get the landowner coming out to talk to you, like, why are you shining the spotlight <laughs> yeah, on exactly. my property? Or he might call the local game warden to say, hey, somebody's out spotlighting on my property, but. Um, yeah, that's not a, the the spotlight itself onto private property is not a violation. Got it. Yeah, I was just curious because, like in Michigan, uh, where I grew up, the you can you can shine, but not, I don't think you can shine during like the month of November, like when the rut kicks in for for deer. And uh, so I was just I was just curious. I've never actually shined in Colorado, but it, I uh, I was just curious mm-hmm. for my own, uh, you know, just understanding of that. So mm-hmm. okay, got it. And and you just said uh, drones are obviously illegal to and in a method as to find or locate game in an effort to hunt them. Um, right, you can't well. use it as a part of your hunt. So if it's June and you've got a drone out and you're not harassing wildlife with it, but you happen to see wildlife with it, you know that's no big deal. But if you take out a drone the day before you go out on your hunt in the unit that you're hunting then it's, uh, that's a possible violation. Got it. Got it. Well, I think that kind of wraps it up as far as like uh, the list of questions I had. It's, it's kind of a, <laughs> kind of just did like a, just a happy hour of, of just all sorts of random questions, but I think we've, we've covered quite a bit and, and hopefully it gets, gets the word out to people maybe on some of these gray areas and, and understanding some of the laws and, oh, it sounds like it's always best to check, you know, with local offices and authorities and it doesn't hurt to reach out and in a lot of these scenarios if you're unsure so i think we've covered quite a bit there yeah yeah it, re- it really doesn't and we've tried you know i know our our big game brochure is big and it's got a lot of little letters in it but it, it's got a few pages that are marked as hunting laws and it never hurts to review those once a year just to make sure that you're up to speed on any changes and to refresh your memory on what is legal or isn't legal and and that's just got it in plain language and really hopefully easy to read. And if after reading all that, you still have a question, you know, definitely call us. And if you're out in the field and something funny happens, you know, definitely call us. It's, we're, we're here to be a resource. And, and I guess the only other plug I'd have is, you know, a lot of us are out there trying to do the right thing. And sometimes we make mistakes, but there's a lot of people out there that are intentionally doing the wrong thing and taking advantage of the resource and, um, and, uh, and poaching. And so if, if you guys are out in the field and, and you see something, be sure to call Operation Game Thief and let us know. And sometimes little information adds up to a big case. So um, we just really appreciate people being out there and being our eyes and looking out for the, the more, you know, intentional impact to the resource. Um, that we we see going on sometimes. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I guess just to kind of leave us, have you have you worked on a on a like a pretty interesting like have you have you worked on a lot of poaching like cases and investigations? Is that something pretty big and in, in, in what you've dealt with over the years? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do a lot of the the smaller stuff, of course, and I've assisted on a lot of really interesting investigations. I can't really claim credit for any of them, but. Um, you know, some of those have been, you know, originated from OGT, and uh, I think the most interesting one originated when one of our officers was watching a hunting show while eating a chili dog and saw something that just wasn't right. And really? That turned into a pretty big case. Yeah, so yeah, there's some pretty interesting things that, that these officers get into, and so it's uh, um, it, it's always, oh, always cool. Yeah, well, I'm sure social media and 
and you know just the internet in general has has caused a lot of people uh you know their their fate from uh, <laughs> from some of that you know i've i've heard of that where people will post something and they didn't have the tag or whatever and it's just like wow how how dumb can you be but it, it, you know it can be a good resource for for officers to to investigate some of these illegal activities and i'm sure it's kind of growing more rapidly as 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 all that evolves yeah yeah people's desire to document everything in their life has been helpful in some cases for us. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Well, Kristen, this has been really fun and and really enjoyable, and I learned a ton, and it was just uh, very educational. I think a lot of people will will benefit from this, especially – beginners and 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 you know people new to western big game hunting in Colorado so i've i've uh i definitely really appreciate you coming on and 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 like i said we'll have to have you back on for a follow up episode at some point we'll talk about some other interesting topics and and uh would love to have you back on in the future for sure yeah definitely i i'd appreciate that and thanks for having me on all right and there we go another episode in the books big thanks to Kristen for coming on I really enjoyed that. I learned a lot and and hopefully everybody out there listening did as well. I mean, just covering everything from the new season dates and and that structure as well as the application for 2020 and some of the changes we've made there. Uh, you know, and also just kind of diving into all the questions and legalities and talking about some gray areas and and laws pertaining to hunting and access and tagging and shooting all, all the above if you're listening to it and you were like man i wish he would have asked this question or i've had a question on this subject for a while or this particular issue write me an email shoot me an email because if if we get enough people writing in and we get enough questions maybe i'll do a follow-up episode at some point maybe this summer before hunting season so if you want me to ask some more questions, shoot me an email, adam at transitionwild.com, or you can go to transitionwild.com and fill out the contact form, whatever's easiest, and uh, we'll see. See, maybe we put together another follow-up episode. If you are planning to hunt Colorado for elk in 2020, definitely go to the site, transitionwild.com, subscribe. I will send you the Colorado Beginner Elk Hunting Guide for free, kind of just as a Kickstarter 101 to elk hunting here in Colorado from scouting to planning a hunt to gear to buying tags all of the above uh you know just a really informational and inspirational pdf 10 page guide that I'll send you for free just go to transitionwild.com subscribe and you'll get that in your inbox all right that is it I really appreciate everybody tuning in thanks so much for the support and thanks to everybody who's left a review and, and, and written a positive message. And thank you to everybody who has subscribed to the podcast. It really means a lot. All right, I will let you go. Big thanks to our sponsors, Expedition Archery, Skullbrew Coffee, and Outdoor Edge Knives. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll talk to you soon.